A serial killer hunted young, vulnerable women and murdered them in an unspeakably cruel and depraved manner, disposing their bodies in the Green River and heavily wooded green spaces throughout King County for nearly 20 years. That is until his capture in 2001. Last week, in episode one of our two-part series on the Green River Killer, we talked about how Gary Leon Ridgway evaded capture because he didn't fit popular preconceptions of what a serial killer was. He wasn't a loner. He was either married or had a steady girlfriend during all of his adult life. And he had steady employment, actually receiving awards for perfect attendance. He had no significant known juvenile or violent criminal history at the time. In today's episode, we'll talk about Ridgway's confession that would reveal there were signs of psychopathy all along. If only law enforcement knew when they had arrested Ridgway in 1982 for soliciting prostitution, that he had killed a cat by suffocating it when he was a kid, and that he stabbed a six-year-old boy when he was just a teen but was never caught. A detective managed to locate that little boy, who was by then a grown man, still haunted by that memory. He had been playing near a wooded area near his home, wearing a cowboy hat, cowboy boots with two, six guns, and a toy rifle. And it was while playing with a stick, he can never forget the teenage boy who walked over to him, asked him if he wanted to build a fort, suggesting they go into the woods. That trusting little cowboy followed the older boy into those woods, but instead of building that fort, the teen turned and stabbed him through the ribs and into his liver. The little boy gasped, clutching his midsection, asking him, why'd you kill me? Feeling the blood pump out of the slice wound with every heartbeat, his shirt slick red with blood, that was gushing to the point where he felt it running down his leg and into his little boots. The teen we now know was Gary Ridgway, and he began to laugh, and with a smile on his face, he took that knife that was still in his hand and wiped the bloody blade across the little boy's shoulder once, twice, then folded the blade back up and says, I wanted to know what it would feel like to kill somebody. In today's episode, we'll also talk about Ridgway's relationship with his mother. She would bathe him, shower him, uh, up until he was in his teens, paying attention to certain body parts. And she would bathe, sunbathe nude, and uh, he started fantasizing about having sex with his mother. Then he fantasized about killing her. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Uh, as a mother of a teenage boy, that makes me want to hurl out my guts. That is so disgusting. No. I mean, the story of the little boy who just wanted to build a fort and ended up getting stabbed by this teenager is wrong, gross, violent, just so hard to hear. I think that the thing about Gary Ridgway is that there was so much under wraps. Like, people find it so difficult to believe. I mean, even the tweets and the Facebook posts that we're getting where people are like, you know, why did it take so long? Like, there's some kind of something behind the fact that it took 20 years. But it's like there's so much about this guy that they had no idea. The other thing that I sort of find interesting is the the connection between 
the connection between sexual perversion and violence and how those seem to go hand in hand so frequently. And especially in this case with Gary Ridgway, he goes from fantasizing about his mother to wanting to kill his mother, which obviously seems like opposite extremes of the spectrum from love to hate. But they're not. They're connected. Well, and so many of these uh, serial killers, issues with their mothers are so connected. And we'll get we'll get to that more as we dive into this. But we left off last week um, that Ridgeway was bumped from a person of interest to a suspect after one of his intended victims actually survives an attack in 1986. Um, and that leads to Gary Ridgway. Now, Kim, you'll remember that we that they were able to get him to chew on that gauze. We were interviewing, of course, all the girls that we can who are booked into jail for prostitution, who are on the street, those that would talk to us. And one of them said, yes, I, you know, I remember a guy who was driving a pickup truck. I escaped from him. She gives a description. And we we finally figure out who he is. And so we put together enough probable cause to get a search warrant. We searched his locker at work, at Kentworth truck. We took a pair of coveralls out of that locker and we kept it. And in the search warrant, we asked the judge for a blood sample. The judge said that that would be too invasive to stick a needle in his arm, but you can take, uh, you can have him chew on a gauze and collect his saliva. Them having that gauze would prove critical over a decade later. But unfortunately, the writing was on the wall about uh, people just getting sick and tired of the task force not not moving forward with the case. We had so many suspects that I think most detectives were going, man, this guy really looks good. And as time went on, those of us that had that stayed and had been there since the beginning sort of had our like top five, you know, Melvin... Foster would have been one of those, Ridgeway, and there were two or three others that kind of had some similar things. They were on the street. We caught them patronizing prostitutes. They assaulted a prostitute. A prostitute escaped from them. And, and uh, you know, those kinds of things put you kind of in a high-priority box there. So he was in a high-priority box, but they were never able to prove anything. And he wasn't alone in that high-priority box. They had a handful of people that they were probably trying to keep tabs on and investigate, you know, Mm -hmm. look into their backgrounds, possibly get search warrants for their homes or cars. I mean, I could see all of these investigations kind of happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of man hours. Well, you know what's You hit the nail right on the head there because I actually just had coffee with one of my contacts. I I was bringing this up. I'm like, I don't understand at this point. Why didn't they just continue following him? And he said, you know what? This takes so many man hours. This takes it's not it's it's like 24 hours a day, you know, four or six cops that they pull. And I mean, that's a ton of resources for one person, although now in 2020 hindsight, you know, it's like, why didn't they do that? Well, but then you also have other crimes that are happening. And if you ignore all of those other crimes to put a handful of cops on this one guy when you don't have any hard evidence at the time, you could see where the public would probably get pretty upset about that. Well, and the public did get upset. And in 1990, after eight years of trying to find the killer, they pulled the funding for the task force. We all saw it coming. The command staff pretty much had said, this isn't going anywhere. The community was, it's not going to be solved. And they pulled the funding. Were bodies still piling up? Not as quickly. You know, most of that happened in the 80s and into the and into the early 90s, in 1990, pretty much collecting remains had, had sort of tapered off. 
And I, uh, myself, Tom Jensen, and Jim Doyne were the last three left. And Jim and Tom were reassigned to major crimes where they they managed and monitored the case because people were still calling in. They were still calling me. I went to patrol. I was promoted to sergeant. I was fortunate to have taken the test, got promoted out of the task force because they did away with it. I went to Burien White Center is where I was assigned, which is the area where Ridgeway, well, the Green River Killer back then, uh, was operating. So I spent my graveyard shift looking for <laughs> looking for Gary Ridgeway or whomever the killer was and, you know, trying to do my job at the same time because you're obsessed with it still, right? It kind of reminded me of that, um, the ending scene of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where there's that. Do you remember that scene? where they, I don't remember. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well, it's like they they put that ark in this, like, government building. Oh, right. It's surrounded by and other boxes other, or crates. You know, millions and millions of these boxes. And so all of that evidence was basically sitting there. And, um, and Reichert says that, you know, even though, you know, he was moved on, catching the Green River Killer was never, never far from his mind. But as he rose in the ranks, um, he later became the sheriff, the King County Sheriff in 1997. And one of the first things that he did as the sheriff, I think you can guess what that is. Refund the task force? (laughs) It was called an evidence review team together. Five detectives, four or five detectives locked in in a room started pouring over the evidence. I called some of the old detectives together. We had a, a task force meeting out at Precinct 3 in Maple Valley. Huge discussion on where we should focus our efforts, and everybody agreed, let's go over the 10,000 pieces of evidence. The first ones we went over, of course, were, okay, we've got this, this biological sample. We need to get DNA done on this. And then we had some other, we had some forensic paint, so it was microscopic paint spheres, on three items of clothing. So the the DNA evidence in 1999, we flew it back to the East Coast. There were two labs. They looked at the evidence. The detective went with it and, and held it on his lap the entire way back there, right in a cooler, frozen. Uh, they said, uh, boy, too fragile, too minute. We can't do it. The science hasn't progressed to the point where we can determine a DNA profile on those, take them back, freeze them, keep them frozen. We'll let you know when the science progresses. And in 2001, March, we submitted the gauze and the biological samples from 1982. So the 1982 samples from the victims and the 1987 gauze from Ridgeway. The biological evidence was collected by the medical examiner's office during the autopsy. And those are, you know, they have to be intact bodies, fresh, because as you know, that's biological material. So it'll naturally decompose too after a certain amount of time. So we were fortunate to really come across those three victims that had that evidence still intact. Okay, I have two questions for you at this point. One of them you may not be able to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. He brought up the fact that this is biological evidence that will decompose. Will it get freeze or burn? And is there a point at which it will no longer be good? I think it really depends on, you know, going back to the Mandy Stavik case, where it was all about preserving that evidence. And he said that along the way, that uh, that uh, detective basically worried over that that issue. But depending on if you keep it fresh, it shouldn't. I mean, the layman person in me is saying it it should be okay based on what you mean, if you you keep it frozen, if you keep Yeah, if you keep it frozen, and you keep it frozen in a way that doesn't disturb it. 
you know, I don't know. I'm I don't know. To I got meat in my freezer from <laughs> six know. months ago. It looks like. So the fact that they were able to preserve it for this long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though they didn't even know that it was. For the, years and years yeah. and years. And then the other question I have is the technology. Do they have computers yet? I mean, a computer smaller than a classroom. No, I don't. I think that they because they brought it to the lab once and they were like, it's still too soon. Right. It's still too soon. But at some point during that process, you know, they finally were able after 20 years of obsessing over this case. Um, it was finally the time had come for justice. The, the lab came back on September 10th, 2001. Uh, Detective Jensen and some others came to my office downtown and said, Sheriff, we've got this case. We've got something to tell you. And uh, they laid out three separate sheets of paper. One was the DNA profile of uh, Opal Mills. The other one was the DNA profile of Marsha Chapman. Those were the two in the river. Those were the two uh, samples, biological samples. And then Tom Jensen flips over the third sheet of paper and uh, had Green River Killer written at the top. And you could see that the DNA charts matched perfectly. So I said, Tom, are you trying to tell me we got the guy? And he said, well, we got him on these, on these cases. And he hands me an envelope. And he says, his name is in here. And I said, I don't even need to, to, to open this. It's Gary Ridgway. <laughs> and uh, he, looked, he looked at me and he said, how'd you know that? And I said, Tom, you know, we, we've had this feeling all along and and uh, I open up, and there's the mugshot of Ridgway that was taken in 1982 when he was arrested for patronizing a prostitute. Now, imagine that for all these years, you started out when you were 31 years old, and now you're in 2001, I'm 51 years old. And I have, over the years, collected body after body after body. I've been to home after home after home telling parents that their daughter is dead, that we have the remains, or telling some parents that we found a body, but we don't know who it is yet, and years later coming back and, and telling them. Living with, you know, every night wondering, will there be someone else killed? Why can't we solve this case? And for 19 years, this has been a cloud that's hung over my head. And think of the families wondering who killed my daughter. Why would they take my daughter's life? Why would they do this? What monster took my... I mean, some families kept their daughter's bedroom exactly how it was years and years, years later, how it was the day she went missing. And they still celebrate her birthdays. And so when Tom came in and he, he laid it out on the table, I mean, there was like a moment of intense emotion that you, you want to just cry, but you're happy. But you know the suffering that went into all of this and suffering that it caused people. You know, there, I have to say there were some tears in that room and some hugs. So this is September 10th, 2001, he said, the day that they found out that the DNA was a match for Gary Ridgway. Mm -hmm. Very next day, the world fell apart. The very yeah. next day was 9-11. Yeah. I don't know about you, but when that happened, it was as if time stopped for about a week or two mm -hmm. for oh, me and, oh, and, and you know, the community, yes. right? Especially for law enforcement, when you're watching the first responders going into the Twin Towers and so many of them are not making it back out mm -hmm. or making it back out but are severely injured, 
all the people finding well, and, out. And one other thing that I always think about with that is that when we watch them, everybody's running out and they're running in. I mean, to, I mean, there's no greater image, I think, of, of the sacrifice and the courage and bravery than of that moment. And it is etched in all of our memories of those of us old enough to know. Yeah, I just... It, it reminds me that, you know, with this podcast, Scene of the Crime, we want to take you not only to the place where something happened, but the time when it happened. Because, mm-hmm. you know, time has such an effect on the way that things are, you know, the technology, the way people are feeling, the mood of the community and the world, you know, all of these things kind of combined to have such a great impact on these cases. I just wonder what it was like to finally be like, yes, we got him, Gary Ridgway, we're going to put him away, the murders are going to stop. Mm-hmm. And then the very next day, the world collapses. That had to be so dramatic. You know what? I wasn't thinking about it that way because when he finally told me after all the, which is nothing, I mean, just doing my research, but I'm just, after, you know, me sharing my experiences of growing up with it and and being able to talk to the detective that was, you know, yeah. one of many who were a part of the case. But, you know, the 20, the 30, the 40, you know, in the previous episode, you said, I would never want to do that job. I wouldn't either, because going to 40 families and, and knocking on that. I mean, I was caught up in that moment. But yeah, September 11th. And the thing about that, too, is that they actually were following him because they really wanted to. I mean, I'm really impressed with their restraint. They didn't go out and and, and arrest him immediately. They started following him and just kind of seeing, and he was still cruising. He was still cruising, and they're like, you know what? We need to, we don't know what he's capable of, obviously. And so Riker did share this detail with me that I've been thinking about, you know, that kind of speaks to um, what you were talking about, uh, our interview, because it's so relatable to me. And I'm sure, you know, many people listening to the podcast right now, you know, it will be relatable to you as well. I think... In today's world, you know, uh, cops are really getting a, a bad rap, and they, they, the personalities really of police officers, I don't think, really change over time, over history, from one generation to the next. There's there's something about people who go into law enforcement that drives them to want to protect. I'm the oldest of seven kids. I ran away from home when I was in uh, senior in high school. I grew up in a home with domestic violence. Uh, so I sort of had that connection to, you know, to the victims in, in that regard anyway, feeling like I, you know, I, I could be one of them, but that, yeah, there are bad cops out there, but you know what? 99.9% of the people that are working in law enforcement back when I was there and is true today want to protect us. They want to do the right thing. I mean, I just wanted to catch the guy that hurt and took the lives of these people and hurt these families. It was the right thing to do. It was my job, but it was also something that, you know, for me was deeply personal. So on November 30th, 2001, as Ridgeway was leaving the Kenworth truck factory where he worked in Renton, he was arrested for the murders of four women whose cases were linked to him through the DNA evidence that was collected from the very first victims in and around the Green River. They were the silent witnesses that they needed to, you know, get that biological evidence to finally, as Cloyd would say, to get the, get the fucker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he got the fucker. <laughs> Go, Riker. Exactly. Go, Riker. <laughs> I still meet people today who say, I know exactly where I was when you were on TV and you said we caught the Green River Killer. 
which I didn't really say, but everybody knew because we only had them on four. Uh, and then a couple, three or four weeks later, we ended up with uh, three more charges on paint evidence. But that shows to me that, the, you know, the impact was sort of like, now there'll be some people not old enough to remember this, but in, in 1980, I think, right, Mount St. Helens erupted. Yes, uh, yes. Right. I know, I know where, exactly I was. where I was. And, and uh, it's that same, it had that same sort of an impact on people when we made the announcement that he had been arrested, that that killer had been taken off the street. People who watched that, who heard that, who were here, remember exactly where they were when that announcement was made. And, and that just shows you the power of, that that case held over the community for so long. So they had him in custody. They were able to arrest mm-hmm. him and link him to several of the cases. But yeah. that's just the first step, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they still need to try to get a confession or conviction or both. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was he was, you know, this, these seven charges implicated Ridgeway in only a fraction of the Green River homicides. A majority of the victims' remains were you know, they, they were still undiscovered, and it was speculated that another killer could possibly remain at large. And so little evidence connected him to the other, what we would come to know as the 42 homicides. And the, even though it was very difficult, gut-wrenching decision, the prosecutor and law enforcement were all in agreement to make a plea deal that would spare Ridgeway's life because he knew... He knew that he was going to get the death penalty, and that's when his Ridgeway's attorneys went to the prosecutors and said, hey, let's make a deal. How do you make a deal with the devil? Well, they made the deal, but they would say that it was for the victim's families because there were still so many bodies out there that they knew, and they wanted to make sure that law enforcement wasn't chasing their tail on other investigations looking for another serial killer when it was Gary Ridgway all along. But to say that all the families agreed with the decision to spare him the death penalty in exchange for this information would not be accurate. My sister is victim 49. I don't agree with this plea deal to spare his pathetic life. It makes me sick to my stomach that he beat the system. He's worthless and he's not going to give any more victims up. If I had one thing to ask you today, it would be kill him. I know he will burn in hell because you can't be God. God will take care of him since the system failed to do so. 49 women, aunts, mothers, sisters, cousins, we're we're talking about a whole generation. I ask you again, what do you have to do in the state of Washington to get the death penalty? During his sentencing, the victim's families finally had the chance to tell Ridgway and the world what these young women meant to their families. It's ironic because Shonda's uh, summer sister, who was one of the victims, she said, quote, the same lives that you took seem to be the same lives saving yours. I find that very ironic. Spot on. Isn't it? Absolutely spot on. So eventually, the Green River Killer pled to 48 murders to save his life from the death penalty, a deal prosecutors made to force him to disclose the locations of still missing women. In court statements, he later reported that he had killed so many that he had lost count. And so it was during these uh, interrogations that Ridgway confessed to 71 murders. He is presumed to have killed over 90 
He was convicted of 49 murders. He could not recall his last victim, but he did finally admit that although he slowed down, he never stopped killing altogether until his arrest in 2001. And that's what made them pull the trigger earlier in your con- the conversation about September 11th happening, and they didn't arrest him until November 30th. But they they saw that he was up to his, you know, he was still cruising, right? presumably, possibly still killing. It's unbelievable that there could be that many victims that still haven't been found. Uh, it's not impossible for me after listening well, to uh, this is true. the way that he would do it, that he would kill like in one week, he had killed like five women. I mean, he was like a monster, a killing machine is what Reichert said. And But Reichert and I also talked about how Ridgeway was so nondescript. And for many, including me, that <laughs> added to the horror that this, when they finally unmasked him, this mal, because I actually lived average, in Renton. An average looking man in his 30s with brown hair. Yeah. That's I, like half of Renton. Well, <laughs> and, and when they found him, he was in his 50s. And so he looked even more nondescript. Nondescript. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With glasses. And you just can't even wrap your head around that he, that this mousy looking guy could be capable of being one of the world's worst serial killers. How disappointed how disappointed were people when they actually saw Ridgeway? Because at this point, I think we were all expecting, you know, either a Ted Bundy or the complete boogeyman, right? It is part of it. He he was just sort of a, you know, mousy kind of a guy that wouldn't stand out in a crowd that no one would really pay attention to or, or recognize. And if you're you're out in that culture, that street culture out there, he just sort of slid in and split out. He kind of fit right in. So this guy is pure evil. It doesn't matter what he looks like, what he thinks. He was a killing machine. One case, on the way to work, picks up a young girl. First, he has sex with her, kills her, keeps her in the back of the pickup truck with a canopy on it, drives to work, works four hours. At lunch break, he goes out to his truck, drives to a dead-end street, has sex with a dead body in the back of the truck, drives back to work, finishes out the shift, starts to drive home, hits a dead-end street, has sex with the body again buries her, and then drives to his home, has dinner with his wife, watches TV, and goes to bed. And he tells his wife, look, I, I might be late. It's none of your business why I'm late. I might leave her early for work. That's none of your business either. Just know that, uh, you know, I got to go to work and, and leave it at that. And that's how this guy operated. And when you ask him why he killed, he said, because I could. That's that's it. They were his property. He felt more guilty about taking a ring or a piece of jewelry from the victim than taking their lives. Didn't mean anything to him. Ridgway essentially said that, quote, the women, they underestimate me because I look like an ordinary person. He says he acted in a way with the young women to make them feel more comfortable. He says he got into their comfort zone because he's not muscle bound and he didn't look like a fighter, just an ordinary John. And that was their downfall. My appearance was different from what I really was. I wonder what his wife feels today, now that she knows all of this. Well, I know they're divorced, but I what? know that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, given. well, you know what? Some You never know with some people, right? But you right? know the hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, I wonder how many times she has kind of armchair quarterbacked her, her own life. Why didn't I see this? Why didn't I ask him more questions? Why did I let him get away with these non-answers when he would leave early or come home late? I can't even, I can't even, I mean, the, the person that I feel for is not the wife, it's his son. Well, yeah, that's... You know, because when you look at that relationship and how his life is basically what, what he wanted to be 
he can't be because of his father, that that legacy. When you actually listen to these interviews with him, I mean, it just is mind boggling that someone so average looking, so like when you listen to his interviews, I mean, even knowing that he's the killer and everything that he did, it's just like I think that's why we do what we do with the podcast. It's like trying to understand, you know, that guy eight years building a bunker. You just don't know what's in a person's head. Did we ever hear from that little boy that he stabbed when he was a teenager? Do we know where he is now? Um, he lives in California, I guess, after that incident. Um, he was, like, hospitalized and then finished out school from home, and then they ended up moving to California. But, um, I mean, he has, like, this serious – I mean, this was a very – you know, he's lucky he's alive. Exactly. I mean, it yeah. wasn't, like, a little wound. It was, like, a huge – I'm they a little never bit surprised him. that Ridgway didn't stick around to make sure that he was dead. Because he said he wanted to know what it felt like to kill somebody, but he I think, actually didn't kill him. I think that given the fact that he was six years old and that he he's bleeding, the blood is running into his boots. I think he probably thought that the kid was dead and he just was hubris, I guess, like thinking he didn't have to wait around for it to actually happen. I don't know. I don't know why. I, I, I think of how did this guy, this kid not get caught? You know, when they have a boy who's taken to the hospital and like, how how did they not find him? But it could be the same situation where he's like, well, it was a teenage boy with brown hair, average build. That's I mean, what I'm saying. Just, I know. With a pocket knife. I like mean, how many little boys know, in the 80s had pocket exactly. knives? <laughs> but he was 16. I know. So I also talked to um, Reichert about his thoughts on what made Ridgeway this way. And it's interesting because Reichert actually talked to not only Ridgeway, but also he talked to Ted Bundy, which is for a law enforcement, local law enforcement. And why did he do that specifically because he wanted to get insights on Ridgeway? Yeah, because Bundy actually, I mean, I think Bundy was getting jealous with all the attention that he he wouldn't call him the Green River Killer. Bundy called him the River Man. And he was sitting on death row in Florida. And all of a sudden, the... Um, the River Man's getting all the attention. The River Man's <laughs> getting all, all the attention. But Reichert said that Bundy and Ridgway had something in common. I don't even think psychiatrists, psychologists can really give you uh, a firm answer on that. There's a lot of theories you know, on how people end up this way. Ted Bundy, of course, blamed it on pornography. Ridgway basically said, I had some relationships with women. You know, he had a wife, he went off to the Navy. He was cheated on by girlfriends and wives and divorced a couple of times. And his last wife was 13 years. And his mother, he blamed it on his mother too. But he didn't tell us everything about that relationship between him and his mom. But we did get a little bit of a glimpse so she would bathe him, shower him uh, up until he was in his teens, paying attention to certain body parts, uh, washing him. And uh, she would sunbathe nude, and uh, he started fantasizing about having sex with his mother. Then he fantasized about killing her. He was at, she was uh, worked in a men's store, clothing store, and uh, he would go to visit her and would see her flirting with guys, and so his opinion of his mother went down the drain, and he said so his opinion of women in general, really. But there's something else happening there, obviously, <laughs> that I don't think we can all put our finger on, but it could be a combination of the way he was raised. It could also be a combination of you know how he was born, his chemical makeup, his, his genes, that his DNA. So with Ridge, Ridgeway, it seems to be a mixture of lust and humiliation, he talked about his vivid memories of having his genitals washed by his mother. 
and that this imagery may have contributed to his sexual development. Um, Ridgway fantasized about showering with prostitutes and his attraction to his mother accompanied by homicidal thoughts about her. Uh, during those interviews, he said how he entertained thoughts of mutilating her, killing her, burning down the house with her inside of it. But he never did anything to her. I mean, he, he took it out on these young women. And during the those many interviews with a the psychologist, they came up with the conclusion that, you know, he suffered no mental illness that would absolve him of responsibility for these crimes. He murdered his victims deliberately, methodically, and systematically. He was uninhibited by any moral concerns. And in five months of interviews, he displayed no empathy for his victims and expressed no genuine remorse. He killed because he wanted to. He killed because he could. He killed to satisfy his evil and unfathomable desires. Now, one thing that I mentioned earlier was the Bundy detour that in 1984, uh, Bundy wrote into the sheriff's office and, and says, quote, don't ask me why I believe I'm an expert in this area. Just accept that I am and we'll start from there. So basically, he wanted to talk to Reichert and I think and Reichert thinks to get some attention. You know, he was getting the newspaper. He was watching what was going on up here in Seattle. And I think he was getting a little bit worried that uh, his reputation was going to be um, maybe not quite to the level that he wanted to be, it to be because Ridgeway was killing more people. And there's sort of a competition between him and what he called the uh, river man. So, yeah, he wrote the letter, said, hey, come on down. I think I might be able to help you get into the mind of the river man. So Bob Kippel and I flew to Florida. We spent uh, two and a half, three days with Bundy. My first impression was that he was sort of like Ridgeway. I mean, he looked, to me, people always describe him as this gregarious, handsome guy. But, of course, in prison, he looked uh, pretty meek, mild, weak. He tried to come across super intelligent. Uh, He's very articulate. So he went on to describe, hey, you know, your river man will do this, he'll do that, and he'll go back to the sites, he'll have sex with the bodies. He's probably gone to pornographic movie. You might want to go down to a pornographic movie theater, see and start interviewing people that go there. And uh, I mean, he just had all these theories. But as he was talking, of course, it was obvious to both Bob and I that he was talking in the third person. And it soon became apparent that he was really telling us what he was was doing without saying, yeah, I did this and I did that, Uh, because they learned later as he started to talk about some of the cases, he did go back and have sex with the bodies like Ridgeway did. You know, when I, I first met him, I didn't want to shake his hand, but he put his hand out there. I shook his hand. And the thing that struck me was, you know, how many lives has he really taken with that hand that I just shook? And both of them, when you look in their eyes, it is, it's just dark, empty, evil, period. There's one big difference between the two, though, what? I think. Well, Bundy wanted the attention, and Gary Ridgway clearly didn't. Yeah. He wanted to, during his confessions, he wanted credit for the, quote-unquote, his kills, you know? I guess once you're caught, why not get credit yeah, for I all mean, of there your was, right. evil? But it was interesting, though. Initially, Ridgway adamantly denied having sex with the bodies of his victims. Eventually, he admitted it. 
And he admitted that his desire for sexual intercourse with the corpses was apparently so strong that he would engage in risky behavior to accomplish it. Like killing people? (laughs) Well, like Bundy, (laughs) you know, he went off the rails. You know, he was caught and then he kept escaping and then he went to Florida and then killed all those uh, co-eds. So he was like... As you as you mentioned, Ridgway appears to have been in more control of his emotions about it. He didn't want to get caught. But Ridgway described an occasion where he drove back to visit the body of a woman that he had killed with his son in the truck. While his son slept in the truck, Ridgway got out, had intercourse with the body some 30 feet away, then returned to the truck. And, you know, thankfully, the son, he, he said the son was a hard sleeper. But they asked him, like, if your son would have woken up, would you have killed him? And he paused. And I just feel for his son. Like, he did these things with the son and used the son as a way to ease the tension between the women that he was potentially trying to kill. Yeah, because if I see somebody with a little kid in the car, I'm thinking this is a dad who's got to be a loving person. Somebody made a kid with him. Well, and that's you know? <laughs> exactly what they would do. He would, he would when, when they would ask him if he was the Green River Killer, because many of them did, he would purposely take out his wallet. And this is the ruses that we were talking about. And he would have a, his picture, but he would cover up his name. But next to it, he'd have his son's his son's uh, picture there so that they would think, oh, I'm normal. I have kids. He would keep he would keep toys in the car, in the truck, so that they would think, oh, this is a normal person. It makes sense. And when he would take them, like his preference was to kill them at his home, which he would try to get them to go to his home. And then he would show them his son's room. Like he knew that that would ease their minds. And he used that mm. against them. So basically where he's at right now is he is in solitary confinement. He's in Walla Walla. He will be there for the rest of his life. Does he get mental health treatment or are they just giving up? <laughs> um, I don't know if they give him mental health treatment. I know at one point, I think in 2012, that they tried to get him moved and they did move him, but that people were so upset because he would have access to the general population. And I can't remember what the reason was why. And people were like, hell no, you're not letting this guy get to talk to people and and you know, his victims don't get to talk to anybody. And so he got moved back to Walla Walla. Hmm. So now former Congressman and King County Sheriff Dave Reichert is working with Gordon Thomas Honeywell Governmental Affairs to help Central American countries in building DNA databases to help combat human trafficking. That's amazing. I'm just I have so much respect for him in spending his entire life trying to protect kids. Yeah. And there is no better calling. 50% of victims involved in human trafficking are children. So basically, the work that he's doing now in setting the framework on if a kid is being trafficked, they'll be able to take a swab from both the child and the adult claiming to be their parent. And within 90 minutes, they'll be able to say, hey, is this a family member? And they'll be able to put the framework in place so that these people can you know, quit getting away with uh, trafficking humans. That's incredible. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that detail. That, that gives me hope for the future. You know, you hear these horrible, tragic stories, and sometimes it's depressing. But mm-hmm. when you also hear about the great work that people like Dave Record are doing, it gives you hope. Yeah, it, it definitely gives you hope because we need a lot of help in, in regard to human trafficking. Yeah. I mean, it, there's so many people out there that don't even know. I mean, it's, it's a modern-day form of slavery now. 
from the worst serial killer in our nation's history to one of the deadliest killing sprees. Right around the time that Ridgeway was in the height of his vile activity, there was a shocking attack. 13 people killed at a Chinese gambling club. It was a wake-up call for Seattle police who seemed to have no idea about this crime ring that was targeting the Chinese community in the city. We'll have that coming up next week. To find out more about the Green River Killer and all of our episodes, you can find us at www.sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. We're available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>